The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, along with Signature Bank and Silvergate Bank, has caused panic worldwide and drawn comparisons to the financial meltdown of the Great Recession. The Federal Reserve has stepped in with a massive new fund to bail out the banking sector, but remains committed to its policy of interest rate hikes that lie at the heart, perhaps, of the SVB collapse. We'll talk about that. Is the United States and global capitalism at the precipice of another all-out economic crisis? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you if you're not yet, to become a patron today. If you enjoy listening or relying on this show, show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. Professor Wolf, you have to be busy. Capitalism may be collapsing once again, but welcome once again to the show. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. And I know you are busy. I'm looking, Richard, at the front page of Financial Times. Really important financial capitalist financial newspaper in the UK Here's some of the headlines. This is a front page. Hedge funds stung by bond market fallout from SVB collapse. Second one. Venture capitalists weigh Silicon Valley bank salvage operations. Third. U.S. capitalism is, quote, breaking down before our eyes, close quote, says Ken Griffin. Then, Large U.S. banks inundated with new depositors as smaller lenders face turmoil. Credit Suisse finds material weaknesses, that too is a quote, Richard, in its own financial reporting controls. And then finally, Moody's shifts U.S. banking outlook to, quote, negative, close quote. Anyway, Richard, there's so much ground to cover. Why don't you get us started? Okay. Rather than go into the specifics, although I'm glad to do that if you want, as to what exactly happened to the Silicon Valley Bank, a signature bank, and so on, the basic issues, I think, are clear. Number one, everyone has to remember what a bank is. It takes a commercial bank. It takes in deposits, 
and it pays very little, next to nothing for those deposits. And then it relends that money, that is, it lends other people's money to folks to whom it charges quite a bit. And it makes its profit off of the difference between the little bit they give, if anything, to their depositors versus the interest rates and other kinds of benefits they get from whoever they invest in with their depositors' money. They put in a little of their own money, the bankers do, because that's required by law since there have been so many bank failures in the history of capitalism. No one should think this is new or exceptional or unique or anything. This is another demonstration that if you allow something as important to an economy as the money that literally is the lubricant of everything that happens, to be largely managed, overwhelmingly managed by private enterprises who will tell you honestly that they're in it to make a profit for themselves. They're not in it to make the system work for society. If they did that, they'd be fired. Their job is to make money for whoever owns the bank. This is a crazy system because periodically what's good for the private profits of the bank turn out to be horrible for the economy as a whole. And that's where we are right now, yet again, in the history of capitalism. Why the Silicon Valley? Because they were crunched on both sides. High tech in America is in a tough spot, has been for at least a year, half a year or a year. There have been massive hundreds and hundreds of thousands of high tech workers have been laid off. Many of them in the area, the geographic area, served by the Silicon Valley Bank. At the same time, that bank, like so many others, took a big fat swath of their depositors' money and used it to buy government bonds. They're very secure. Those are debts of the United States government. The story is very simple. You could get 2 3 4% on the bonds, and you paid next to nothing for the deposits. So the more deposits, the merrier, the more bonds you buy, and you live off what's called a spread there. Very simple story. The problem is when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, the effect of that is to lower the price of bonds. That's how they're related, which means that the, the bank in Silicon Valley was losing the deposits that come in because laid off people don't keep deposits in banks because startup companies that are having a hard time raising money don't have enough money to put in the banks. And at the same time, the value of their portfolio of purchased government bonds was going down because the Federal Reserve was raising interest rates. They were caught between the two. Since they're private banks, they weren't required by law to let us all know about the pinches they were feeling, the danger if the direction of both of these things kept going, which it did. They had lobbied earlier this same bank for an increase in the size of banks that would be subject to the stress tests that the banking system puts. The CEO of Silicon Valley, just to give you an idea, Greg Becker, was one of those who pressured Congress successfully 
to exempt banks of his size from the stress tests, which, if we had imposed them on those banks the way we do on the big, huge banks, would have caught this development soon enough that something could have been done about it. But that's the story of every reform of capitalism. It's a long time to fight for it. When you finally get it, you get it in a weaker form. And as soon as the weaker form becomes law, the enemies, the capitalists who are constrained by it, go to work to either weaken it further or to get it reduced or get an exemption or get it repealed. We went into the great crash you referred to as the Great Recession of 2008, just a few years after the Congress finally repealed the Glass-Steagall Act, which was the bank reform that came after the Great Depression of the 1930s. And here we are, having weakened Dodd-Frank, which was the reform that came into effect after 2008 and 9, and bingo, right away we see the results Nothing new, boringly repetitive. It is, as the president said in his press conference the other day, quote, that's the way capitalism works. Right on, President Biden. Truer words were never spoken. I would like, if I could, though, to tell you about some of the ramifications that I think go beyond what the Financial Times told you. Here are just a few. High tech is the most dynamic sector of the American capitalist system. This has been true for quite a while. No other country in the world has the kind of collection of high tech innovative industries with now the possible exception of the People's Republic of China, but no other country comes close. This is a blow to the high-tech sector. It's particularly a blow to the startups where a lot of the key innovations are first figured out, discovered, and worked with until they become interesting enough for the big companies to come in and buy up these startups. In order for them to go, they have to raise money. It has become increasingly difficult over recent months because of the competition of China and many other factors. But the result is that you are now going to make it harder still because you have shaken up the financial foundation of those startups. Silicon Valley Bank was where they did their banking, where they got their loans, where they kept their deposits, and all the relationships there are gone. That bank is gone. No one knows quite how it's going to be resolved. That's still an open question as we talk. But you are dealing a blow to the one sector that this economy could still boast of, and that is not a small matter. Number two. Every bank in the United States buys government securities with its deposits. This is in no way unique to the bank there in Silicon Valley. So the question, of course, on every person's mind who has any knowledge of or any responsibility for deposits in banks, large, small, and medium, is the famous question, how bad are the investments in my bank, the one I'm in charge of, the one I'm borrowing from or depositing in? And the answer is very few people know. Very few people know how to find out. So there's a rush to so-called safety. People with money in medium-sized banks, which is what Silicon Valley Bank is listed as, people who hold shares in medium-sized banks are selling. People who have deposits, businesses or individuals in medium-sized banks are pulling those deposits out. 
putting them in the mega banks, you know, Citibank, Chase Manhattan, all of those. And that's a danger for the middle sector of the banking system. And why is that important? Because the middle sector is a credit provider to a large part of the American economy. They're not going to be able to do it the way they did it before. And we don't know how long that will take and what ramifications all of that will have. And here's a third one. The United States has benefited for the last 75 years in an important way. It was the dominant global, economic, political, and cultural powerhouse. And so what you saw was not only did the world begin to use the U.S. dollar as its reserve currency, but wealthy people in other countries quickly realized the safest place to keep the wealth you have, whether the wealth was acquired legally or illegally, didn't really matter. But the best place to keep it was in the United States, because there the government was pledged to be pro-capitalist. The only political parties with any size or power were both enthusiastic supporters of capitalism. The labor movement was weak. The political system organized against it. So if you were a rich person in Asia, Africa, Latin America, Europe, you parked a part of your money here. You had more confidence in the United States than in the country you were living in, born in, worked in, etc. What the recent history, and now add this banking crisis, what it is doing is teaching people around the world that the world has changed. The United States is not the safest place to keep your money anymore. It is, in fact, a dangerous place. If you had put your money here and if you had invested in startups, if you had bought shares of the Silicon Valley Bank, or for that matter, many other banks, you are now suffering losses. That's not why you put your money in the United States. We're going to see a withdrawal, maybe not everything, maybe a bit by bit, slowly but steadily, the special position of the United States has been shrinking, and it has now been given another blow. No one will tell you, and no one can know, which of the blows will finally blow the system. But we are having too many, too frequently, and too big. We just came off of the Great Recession, when the banking system collapsed completely, 2008-9 into 2010. Here we are, a dozen years later, again, again. And meanwhile, we are in all kinds of economic difficulty around the world. Final point. The Federal Reserve is supposed to be protecting us from the inflation, which it was the job of the Federal Reserve not to allow to happen in the first place. Well, the way they're doing that, not that they have to, but the way they chose to do it was by raising interest rates to solve the problem of the inflation. Okay, now raising interest rates is causing you another problem. And what are you going to do? You're collapsing your banking system. That's too dangerous. So maybe you won't raise the interest rates. They were predicted for the next one to be up by a half a point. Now there's speculation they won't raise it at all, or they'll raise it only a quarter point. Yeah, but if you lay off the fight against inflation, well, then you're going to have more inflation. 
And wow, if you add to that that the Federal Reserve has decided to open, and I quote now, limitless money to banks that need to borrow at the Federal Reserve to keep their depositors happy, even if the investments they have would not allow them otherwise to honor the depositors. Uh-oh, now we're seeing not only that the interest rates may not go up anymore, but that the inflation is being worsened by the Federal Reserve. But you know, this is when you know a human being is in the final stages of his or her life. When everything the doctors do to fix one problem either worsens another one or creates another one. So they try yet another medication. And in the end, it's too much between the trauma of the illnesses and the trauma of the medications, the person expires. An economic system is like that. You cannot keep doing what we have done. We had a crash, a big one, in 2020. We had the worst public health catastrophe in the country's history in 2020. Barely out of it in 2021, an inflation starts as if the pandemic and the crash weren't enough. And then to deal with the inflation, you raise the interest rates. And now you discover that when you raise the interest rates, the banks start collapsing. It's too much. It's too many. It's too many too soon. And you're going to run out of the capacity to cope. And final point, the spectacle of Biden Democrats and Trump Republicans responding to a crisis of the system with nothing better than blaming each other. Let me assure you, the blame is on both sides. They have both been in bed with the bank lobbyists before, during, and after the Great Depression, before, during, and after the Great Recession, and that's the theater of our political system, incapable and unwilling to deal with the crises. Richard, you've made several very, very important points, but in different categories, and I want to I want to go back and comment on one of them and then pursue my questioning with you on, on another one. The first one is regarding how the U.S. was considered, ever since the end of World War II, certainly, a safe haven for people all over the world, capital all over the world, people who had capital all over the world, to deposit their accounts. And, and I can remember very vividly in the early 1970s, after the 1973 Mideast war and then the subsequent Arab oil embargo and the sort of changed ways that oil prices were set instead of it being an obscure agency in Texas dominated by U.S. companies, OPEC and Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, the big oil producers in combination with each other took control of pricing to some degree. And there was all of this hysteria in the U.S. that the that the Arabs and the Arab sheikhs have us by the throat. And then we, it turns out a few years later, it became quite obvious that to the extent that there was more accumulated wealth in oil-producing countries, say like in Saudi Arabia, they deposited their money back into U.S. banks. Those were petrodollars. They weren't petro-euros or petro-yuans or petro-something-something else. They were petrodollars. So even to the extent that the oil producers got more 
dollars, those dollars ended up really basically becoming a big fortification for U.S. capitalism because it's here that they deposited. Now, as you're pointing out, to the extent that the U.S. seems to be a crisis-ridden system and a system where things seem stable one day and completely unstable the next, a lot of that money over time, as you said, maybe not all at once, but certainly over time, will not be, you know, not consider the U.S. to be the safe haven. That's going to be an ultimate deficit for the U.S. capitalist class. That's one point. I want to come to the second point, which you're making, which is that everything that the Federal Reserve Bank is doing, all the tweaking, all of the emergency exigency measures to prevent crisis, to put out fires, they seem to work for a moment, and then they create their own new fire. And I think it's really important to emphasize this because some forces within the right wing, especially, you know, they make the point that the Fed should be abolished. The big problem with the capitalist system is the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed is a dictatorship. Well, in a way, it is a dictatorship. It's a banker's bank. It's a bank of last resort. The bankers have all the real power and decision making within the Federal Reserve. So in that sense, it really is a dictatorship of unelected officials. Nobody knows their names. At the same time, the point that you're making, I think, is so important because no matter how you know omnipresent or powerful, omnipotent that the Federal Reserve or the federal government might seem to be at a given moment, the laws of the capitalist system, meaning the laws that lead it to crisis, are so deep, so profound, and so organic to the system that the government, the seemingly omnipotent force, actually doesn't have all of the power. The power isn't really able or the the capacity of the system to deal with crisis over time starts to wear down. And like every stimulant, you made the point last week, I think, that every stimulant over time becomes a depressant. I mean, this is the dialectic of what we see happening as the Federal Reserve rushes to save the bank, stem the, the panic. And again, Richard, if they hadn't jumped in, if they hadn't said, we're going to cover everyone's deposits, even those greater than 250000 Undoubtedly, the panic would have spread. There would have been a run on the banks, especially U.S. banks. It's kind of like a fire department dealing with a fire that just won't go out. (laughs) Right. I don't have anything particularly to add to what you have to say, except I would like to throw some shade on right-wingers and Republicans attacking the Fed. That is the stale, boring, old junk they keep repeating Is the Fed a kind of dictator in the financial markets? Yeah, it is. But why are you picking that dictator? Every CEO in every major American corporation has exactly the same political dictatorial powers that the Fed does. The board of directors of a corporation about the size of the Fed board in Washington has the same kinds of powers. You can hire and fire most of your workers pretty much at will. Yeah, some have union contracts, but just remember, unions represent less than 10% of the labor force and less than 6% of the private labor force. So for heaven's sake, this suddenly focusing on somebody's a dictator sounds to me like American foreign policy. The dictators you like are not dictators because you like them. The dictators you don't like are horrible, evil, Stalinoid, or fill in the blank because they oppose you in something. It's transparent. It's kind of obvious. 
And let me bring in something you might not see connected, but you should. This last week saw not only a dramatic illustration of how unsafe and unstable American capitalism is, a Federal Reserve desperately trying to rein in an inflation and not doing a good job, jacking up the interest rates, which lead to the, all the other problems we've been talking about. And on the other side of the ledger, a quiet announcement that the People's Republic of China has brought together the Shiite and Sunni split Islamic community with a peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, bitter enemies for many years under the umbrella of the People's Republic. Peace, reconciliation, calming of a difficult situation, ending of a kind of war in Yemen that they basically had been fighting. One side is all about peace, reconciliation, overcoming difficulties, and the other side is a spectacle of panic. This is not a distinction that the rest of the world will not notice. They are noticing, and it is a very serious problem, and it is not over, not by a long shot. Yeah, it's so interesting, Richard, when uh, Obama said in 2011 that the U.S. was going to pivot to Asia, he was kind of making a, a case for the geostrategic policy position within the establishment that the U.S. had been bogged down in losing wars and <laughs> wars in the Middle East. So they were going to pivot to Asia because China took advantage of the U.S. being bogged down in the Middle East to kind of quietly, peacefully rise. That was bad, apparently. So they were going to pivot to Asia. But here you have the People's Republic of China kind of pivoting towards the Middle East as the U.S. was pivoting out. <laughs> and and it's so interesting that Saudi Arabia and Iran sort of brought together by the People's Republic of China. And that was after preliminary talks hosted by the Iraqi government. So you had the Iraqi government, which was supposedly going to be when the shock and awe invasion team went into high gear this time 20 years ago. That's when the invasion happened. And we're having a big protest this Saturday at the White House about that on the 20th anniversary. I think they thought, Richard, that there was going to be a proxy government in Baghdad and Iraq, the country with the second largest oil reserves in the Middle East. Instead, you have Iraq functioning 20 years later as a preliminary interlocutor for Saudi Arabia and Iran, then to sign a peace deal under the aegis of the People's Republic of China. I mean, when you look at this whole picture, I mean, everything the U.S. said and thought, meaning the policymakers, was going to like make America great forever, keep America great forever. None of it has panned out. I mean, it's really something. I want to ask you a final question because this is being speculated about in the media. I think a lot of listeners are curious about it and you can give a, a brief answer because I know time is running short. But how have the bank's involvement with cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, et cetera, played a role into this. One of the banks, the Signature Bank of New York, which has now been shuttered also by the Federal Reserve, was heavily into cryptocurrency. Anyway, if you could real quick explain some of that, and if you want to tell people, of course, to come to your website where you're going to be doing a lot of work, this is going to be a big issue, everybody. So like, pay attention to what Richard Wolf is saying. Yes, the Signature Bank in New York City, which was shut down by the authorities there, 
was known and famous for its lending to the whole cryptocurrency market. That market is in a kind of collapse itself, and it was therefore not surprising that the banks associated with it would experience difficulty. In this case, withdrawal of deposits for a different reason because of the collapse of the cryptocurrency. But then again, it isn't all that different because in the West Coast, it was the kind of stumbling decline of high tech and all the people laid off. Cryptocurrency, it's the absurd volatility of the whole business, the criminality, the failure of some of the companies that service that business. It is always a few industries that are like the canary in the, in the mine. They're the ones that fail first. And then the panic sets in. Oh, my God, is this the beginning of an enormous collapse? What can we do to save it? And you made an important point earlier, Brian. I want to end with it. Yes, the government had absolutely no choice. But you should not see that as, oh, we got a government to take care of. You should see it as, oh, my God, we live in a system which constantly celebrates that private sector is good and the government is bad. And every time the private sector collapses out of its own mistakes, its own bad investments, who does it call in? Yeah, the same government that it will denounce next 4th of July when the CEO makes his obligatory speech to the rotary function. That's what we have, a society more and more troubled, and responding by a denial of what is going on, what it sees, that's the most dangerous thing. Not that you have a problem, but that you cannot bear to face it and see it. That's the risk for this country. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work, and I'm sure there'll be a great deal of content coming forward at his website, rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.